This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, we have the director of a film called The Song Keepers with us this morning. It's a documentary screening this year. It's already opened and it's uh, screening a couple more times, as well as a live music performers, uh, performance from the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir, which is the subject of this documentary called The Song Keepers. Uh, the women and a couple of men perform hymns that have been brought to their communities in the 19th century by Lutheran missionaries, and they take those songs back to Germany like a, like a boomerang and perform them in their own languages, Pitanjara and Aranda. And uh, Naina Sen is with us. And congratulations on the documentary film. And I understand it has pre- it has premiered already here at, at MIF. Last and, night. Yeah, and the uh, response? Wow, it was... Um, I think it will take me days to actually articulate what happened last night. Um, but uh, it was extraordinary, you know... The, it was a sold-out screening. We had all 32 members of the choir there in the room. Um, and the love in that room for them, and I guess the film, was, was palpable. Um, I think I think we got about four standing ovations, which just... I think you know, we were all really emotional. Um, the audience was really emotional, we as filmmakers were really emotional. The choir was really emotional. Um, and for me, really, the highlight was watching the film with them in that theatre. Had you done that before, watched it with them before? We'd done... We had... When we got to Rough Cut stage, um, I went to Alice Springs and we brought all the women into Alice Springs from community to do a Rough Cut screening and a cultural approval screening. Um, but it's very different, you know. That was in a, a little church and that was amazing too because they laughed and, you know, they cried and they got emotional. But... That was an unfinished film, you know, to, to hear it in surround, to hear themselves sing in surround and talk in surround and to see a finished film, but also to watch it with people they didn't know who were kind of laughing and cheering with them, uh, I think was incredibly special for all of us. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, there was kind of pretty spontaneous applause at the end and, and then the women performed. And the two men. You have to, there's two men in the choir. They didn't seem to mind being called ladies in the film. <laughs> um, and they then performed. And, you know, it hadn't occurred to me. Because, you know, the whole crowd was on their feet. And, uh, you know, the, it was very soon after. The film had just finished. Um, and the first song, I think it was quite difficult for the choir to sing. It hadn't occurred to me because they were so emotional. Mm. Um, you know, some of the women were crying and, um, but, you know, it was like we were all, everyone was in it together. The audience was crying. Uh, the choir was crying and, you know, everyone got through it and, and, you know, they sang about three songs and everyone just every time just got on their feet, got on their feet. And, you know, to me, it is, it, I think of the fact that we could have, we got a response like that last night. It was cold Sunday evening, mm. packed house. Tells me that we're on the right track here. Slowly. Well, well let's go back to, I guess, the, the genesis of, of these choirs and how these Lutheran hymns mm. came into being in, in the traditional languages that, that they were. So this was back in the, the 19th century when mm. Lutheran missionaries came to Australia and, and that's where these choirs first formed. Yes, yeah, so... It, 
140 years ago, the German Lutheran missionaries first went to Hermannsburg, um, which is 125 kilometers from Alice Springs. And obviously, they bought lots of things, but one of the things they did bring were hymns. But they were very clear that, uh, you know, they're very strong on the codification of language. So they were very clear that, you know, these hymns, the only way they could transmit that culture and share that culture was if the hymns were in Aboriginal languages. So within three years, the first three years, they translated 53 hymns from German into Western Aranda, which is not an easy thing to do. Obviously, you know, they worked with the local Western Aranda people. They were helped by them. Like, they didn't learn language by themselves. And they were, the translations, they were helped um, by local Western Aranda songmen, lawmen. Um, So I think... Really, I think why I guess it resonated so much is because you did. You had these two cultures that had sacred songs. So the Lutherans very quickly realized that song and ceremony was a pretty pivotal part of Aboriginal culture. And um, so for them it was kind of, it was a, it was a fit. They, there was a reference point, you know, you have sacred songs, we have sacred songs. So they first... All the songs were translated into Western Aranda, but then in time, they were taken out to different communities, surrounding communities with different language groups by Aboriginal people, and then in time were translated into different languages like Pitjantjara and uh, Lurcha. Um, and you know, uh, there's a line in the film where one of the characters, Pastor Rob, says, "During the '60s and the '70s, the the." Choral movement in the Central Desert was massive. It was like, like he says, it was like having your own football team. Every community had a choir, and they did choir festivals, and they travelled interstate, and um, it was a very, very strong musical tradition. And it changed, didn't it? Because in the 70s, the missions came to represent um, something else, you know, and, and, and it went out of favour, and, and the choirs all but disappeared but the songs didn't disappear that that's kind of the the um a big focus of of this film is that the songs were still there yes i mean the choirs didn't like from this massive movement in the 70s by the early 80s there was like you know one or two one one effective choir which is the nataria choir which is always sung and then there was all these other choirs and communities where you know they'd stop traveling um but and the choir numbers had dwindled because you know they used to be mixed choirs so men and women used to sing and then by the 70s um with everything you've just said with with what the mission came to represent but also there was an introduction of country and western music and guitars so the men decided that's the kind of music they wanted to pursue whereas the women said no no we want to keep doing this. We actually we want to sing by ourselves. I mean, obviously, within that, then there was more gospel tradition, you know, instrumentation. The younger people started playing. But the older women said, we just want to sing. These are the songs we will sing. So they kept this tradition alive very quietly. But they did it. And then a choir master rocks up. And and so I mean I'd love to hear about um, about the choir master who's actually uh, not from Central Australia but you no. know flies in from across the shores and 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 takes an interest in the singing tradition there but uh, you know how that happens but also how you got involved with with uh, finding you know finding this story and telling it well uh, Morris Stewart who is the choir's conductor and musical director he's been working now with the choir for about eleven years um, and he. 
you know, he wasn't born in Australia. He was born in um, British Guyana in South America. And then he lived in London for a while. And then um, he met Barb Stewart, his wife, and she's Australian, and they moved back to Australia. Um, and they'd, you know, lived in Melbourne for a long time. And I think in 1996, um, Barb's an artist. So she, she'd been saying to him, I want to spend some time in Central Australia to paint. You know, she, they'd gone back and forth a little bit. But she said, I just need, I just want to spend a winter here, you know. And I think she finally wore him down. And he went, okay, let's do it. And then she was painting and he said, well, I can't just hang out. I have to do something. And, you know, he'd been involved in choirs his whole life, music his whole life. So he literally, the story is he walked up and down the mall in Alice Springs and started asking people if they wanted to join a choir. Like, you know, people from, just people who lived in Alice Springs. And um, I think that first day of rehearsal, I think 35 or 40 people showed up and he started teaching them African freedom songs. And so this choir, Santa Sana, that he set up started growing and there was a bit of buzz around it. And the community women started hearing about this man who was teaching people African freedom songs. And one of the women in the film, Teresa Nipper, she met him and Bob on the street one day and said, you know, you should come out to Arianga. Like, we have a choir. You know, we used to have festivals and we have this cave that we used to sing in. We haven't done that for a long time, but you should come out. Um, so, you know, he was invited by one community first and then successively, you know, to different, different communities. And he found this extraordinary tradition that was just sitting there sleeping quietly with the women just quietly preserving it. And, you know, he said to them, he said, what can I do? What would you like me to do? You know, because he said they already knew how to sing. They had incredible voices. And they said to him, we'd like to sound like a proper choir again. I know. I love (laughs) that. The most honest and um, real need is we just want to sound Proper, yeah, good, you know, well, want to sound great because they came from this <laughs> tradition of of just very strong choral music and strong choirs. It's like you know, some of those recordings from the forties and the fifties and sixties are amazing, big choirs. Um, so he started working with these different communities, and you know, they introduced him to this choral tradition where they had these songs, and then together they would sit and. Rev- bring these songs back to life I guess um, so by the time I met the choir he, yeah he'd been working with them for about 10 years at that stage um, and I heard about the story quite randomly actually I was travelling on a plane from Alice, uh, from Melbourne to Alice Springs and I hadn't done a lot of most of my work has been in northeast Arnhem Land so I hadn't done a lot of work in the central desert and um, there's a woman there um, sitting next to me I didn't know her we were just talking and she we were talking about my work and she said have you heard about this there's a women's choir in, in Central Australia do you know about them and I said no so she told me a little bit about how you know essentially there was this choir and they sang these German Baroque hymns but they sang them in indigenous languages and I was completely drawn in so we had a chat on the plane and, and you know she gave me her details and I over the next couple of days looked them up you know, went on the interwebs. And at that stage, there wasn't very much on them. There was a few little clips. Um, but even, and you know, there were amateur little clips, but even then, like, there was this, you know, four generations of women singing these songs, and there was just something about their voices. That should was, we try and, should we hear a little bit? Yeah. We should. Do you want to fade this up? 
Absolutely. can't get the full volume coming through but i hope people can hear you get some sense of it there it's just beautiful that's from from your film and we're speaking about um a film screening as part of MIF, and uh it's called the song keepers and naina sen is with us she's the director and then we're hearing about how this story came to be and this film i guess the what happens is it is it follows the women as they head to germany back in 2015 for what's called the boomerang tour they go to sing these songs and in a way return them to the land that that they originally came from. And it's really fascinating to me that, I mean, a really strong thing that comes through from this film is that colonialism is a really complex thing because obviously there's there's a lot of negativity that came from the, the colonial project in Australia but these women when they head to Germany they they want to give thanks for these songs that they sang while on the missions um while that their ancestors sang while on the missions and that human connection and that connection through song comes through so strongly in the film what was it like for those women when they got to Germany and sang those songs and, and connected with, with people in those towns? I think there's a few things. I think one, you're right, it is a very complex thing. But I think you also need to very clearly distinguish between, you know, the Lutheran missionaries and the actual colonial settlers. Mm. There, was a, there was a very big distinction. The film makes that distinction mm. um, because the women kind of feel that distinction. They They felt like at that stage when, you know, there was a lot of, uh, settler killings happening the mission protected them and they did so i think it's very important not to confuse the two absolutely and that that come, does come yes. through very strongly um and also you know this was the lutheran missionaries so again you, you can't necessarily even combine them with with the entire mission story because they also did things differently i mean like i said the codification of language was really important to them so you don't have people western Ireland people singing german you have them singing in Western Ireland. So, you know, I think those things are, are, are pretty significant and things that people don't kind of realise. Um, and yes, they they did. They wanted to take these songs back to source. But in singing them in their own languages, they were also very much doing it on their own terms. So these songs in time have become a symbol of strength and cultural survival and language and pride yeah and i think i think um you know jesse lloyd's been doing this with the mission songs project this idea that um misguided in many ways idea that there's a missing link we skip over this these mission years when it comes to music traditions until really recently when now um it's quite exciting to see those uh, songs explored and then sung again and as you say in a in a way that's full of of pride. So what, I mean, there's a performance tonight at the Recital Centre and there's more screenings of this film that hopefully people can get tickets to. And so is there going to be another chapter? I've seen that MIF has been calling it, um, the Central Desert, the Central Desert answer to the Buena Vista Social Club. So are they going on a global world tour? I mean, what's, what's going to happen? Do you think? Look, I think, you know, this, this weekend and tonight 
on one hand, you know, it's kind of, it's the end of something because, you know, the film now has been made, but it's also the start of a whole other journey for them, I think. Um, look, the reality is, is the choir, you know, is, is asked to perform at all sorts of places. I think the fact that they sold out the Melbourne Recital Centre is, is quite an indication of, of, I guess, you know, how extraordinary they are. Um, I, I think they could travel the world if they wanted. You know, there's other things involved in that. And, and the biggest thing is how to get the women from place to place. You know, not just... I mean, you've got to get them first into Alice Springs. So from community. So it's very, it's very expensive. So hopefully I think, you know, the fact that they can now sell out big concert halls will be... will open up opportunities, you know. Um, there's a really good possibility they're going to go to India at the end of the year. Um, to do a series of concerts. Um, look, I think th- I think this is going to be the start mm. of many things. There's also talk of, of, of young people kind of following in, in their footsteps and hopefully continuing this tradition yes. as well. Yes. Well, I actually love that in the film, this idea that if they get to travel the world, it will attract young people mm. <laughs> with well, a travelling spirit. Why not? Well, it's true. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's certainly, there are the younger generation now who are kind of coming going, oh, can we come? Can we come? And the choir is like, you need to practice first and then you can come on the trip. You can't just come on the trip. Do the work, kids. You know? Yeah. And, and these guys, they rehearse hard. I mean, they are, one, you know, if you want to call them a band, they are one of the most hardworking bands I've ever seen. So, um, yeah, I think that the younger generation certainly is, is intrigued and, and thinking, actually, this is something, this is part of our legacy and it's something that we should continue. Hmm. The Songkeepers is uh, screening as part of MIF on Tuesday, August the 8th. That's tomorrow, 6.45pm, and also Monday, August 14, 11am. You can uh, head to miff.com.au to find out how to get tickets to those, and uh, by the sounds of it, um, they might sell out very quickly, if indeed they haven't. I think you can still get tickets to those screenings as it stands, but um, incredible film. Um, And also, just so people know, that the Tuesday night screening, the choir is still in town, so they will be there. So come and show them some love. Well... (laughs) (laughs) Well, congrats on the film. Thank you It's a a wonderful story. Um, Nana Sen has been our guest director of The Songkeepers and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you for having me. And uh, with increasing congestion for both our public transport and also our road system and the onset of electric vehicles and self-driving vehicles and other innovations, what does the future of public transport and transport in general look like in the city and also in regional towns and how are we going to pay for it? Uh, this is the kinds of things that will be spoken about at a seminar taking place this week in Melbourne and also in Sydney. And we've got two of the speakers, Dr Elizabeth Taylor from RMIT and also uh, Dr Elliot Fishman from the Institute for Sensible Transport, both are well known to triple R audiences and it's really great to have you both in and there's lots to talk about and I suppose um, just because I always like your uh, organisation's name Elliot and you're putting on this seminar is disruption in transport a sensible approach is this is this where we need to go well I, th- I think it's an area ripe for disruption really and uh, you'd want to see disruption considering that uh, uh, cars are the second most expensive thing most people buy uh, yet they sit idle for 96% of the time and when they are in use they have an average occupancy of 1.1 people per vehicle so I think it's a good thing to disrupt the the transport world and and there's certainly a lot of things on the horizon and also some things that are available now that are beginning to disrupt the sort of transport mix that we've had and that have really led to our cities being not as good as they could be I suppose. 
Yeah, and Liz, I mean, talking about those cars sitting idle, you've been looking at parking for ages and it is a point of conflict, isn't it? Like the, to try and change, even take a few cars, car parks away from a street um, is quite a confrontational thing for anyone to try and do. Yeah, it's this sort of uh, really grounded, easily forgotten part of transport, as Elliot said, that cars are parked 96% of the time, but we tend to think of them as always moving and, and glamorous. So this is kind of overlooked until the point where you have to say, pay for a parking meter or perhaps you can't park on the street outside your home and then suddenly the future is is, is irrelevant. The, the problem is now, and I'll be talking about um, a lot, where these, these sort of flashpoints that come up around parking. And there was one of those, people might remember, uh, relatively recently in Yarraville where there was a proposal to install parking meters there. What are you going to be um, speaking about in relation to that episode? Yeah, I actually used that incident in my title um, just to show how important parking is to people and how... I guess important it is to not that the answer I have the answers, but to be really aware of how um, what a critical role parking has, and not to underestimate how strongly people feel about keeping it. And first of all, keeping it and keeping it um, ostensibly free. So what happened in Yarraville was that the local council, Maribyrnong City Council, introduced some parking meters to a small area, uh, partly because it, they had so little parking there that they wanted to keep turnover up. But the local traders did not want this. There was a lot of um, political organisation, there were protests, posters, that sort of thing, but the parking meters went ahead and they were immediately vandalised systematically. A few months afterwards they had a council meeting voting whether or not to keep the parking meters and that when they voted to keep them, it erupted into a brawl. A couple of councillors got publicly assaulted, chairs were thrown, that sort of thing. And the title Arabs Bring for my presentation came from the fact that the morning after a representative of the traders said, I made an analogy to the Arab Spring that the concerns about paying for parking were not, I guess, recognised through the formal processes, so they had to resort to violence. And I guess the the outcome there, the lesson is that the council did get rid of the parking metres. It's free. And apparently that's had ramifications elsewhere for other councils thinking about perhaps charging for parking. Um, and I tend to think of parking not just as imposing a cost on on drivers, but this is public space that perhaps isn't best used by by stationary vehicles yeah it's interesting isn't it and uh, i mean the user pays is a big part of this seminar that you're running and this is an example is it elliot of of user pays and people's reluctance to necessarily pay at certain times or for others in this case traders not wanting their customers to have to pay to to be parking in their shopping strip yeah well that's right and uh, donald troop who's the academic that's done the most work on car parking his book is called the high cost of free parking and that it's not really free everybody pays for it even the people that don't drive there because there's an opportunity cost when you provide curbside car parking. That's that's high-value land that you can't do anything else with. And yet what we've seen from examples around the world is that there are more useful, more productive things that can be done with that curbside space that is uh, so often just uh, dedicated to car parking regardless of whether it's the best use of the space. I think Yarraville has a, a good example that I also refer to is that part of Yarraville was turned into a park. So a street was taken over and turned into a public space for... I guess, uh, parks, parking, parking, um, and eating and that sort of thing. And that's been more an easier sell than the parking meters. So there's a kind of messaging about how we use space as well. 
Mm. And I guess that user pays model extends not just to, to parking, but so far in Victoria, there, there's toll roads, there's roads that we pay extra for to use. And this is something that um, I understand you're looking at at the seminar as well around road user pricing that potentially could be implemented more broadly. Yeah, so this seminar is on this Thursday at the Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, we've got a number of different speakers, including the former Premier, John Brumby, uh, two Dutch transport academics, uh, some people from uh, the Reserve Bank Board. They're all going to be talking about how we can better uh, charge for uh, road use, something different to how we're doing it now. One of the ideas that's going to be advanced is the idea of scrapping registration because whether someone drives a 1,000 kilometres a week or a 1,000 kilometres a year, they still pay the same amount for registration, which isn't really fair. People should have some sort of pricing signal that helps to calibrate the, the road use that they, that they uh, consume. And so uh, the idea of scrapping the, the registration and then just having a per kilometre charge is something that a lot of people are now starting to talk about. And it makes uh, a lot of sense, especially when you consider that the federal government currently earn $20 billion in revenue from fuel excise and they're concerned that in the future when maybe half of all cars in showrooms might be electric, plug-in electric vehicles, they're not going to be getting any fuel excise. And so there's some equity in that because if someone drives an old Holden, they're paying a lot in fuel excise, yet if someone drives a $140,000 Tesla, they don't pay anything in fuel excise. And yeah. so that needs mm. to change. And, and is it just drivers, like just uh, those kinds of road users that would be paying for the infrastructure? Yeah, so the, the way that a lot of people are talking about it is that you would calibrate it such that if you drive less than average, you'll be better off because you're not paying the, the registration charge. But if you drive a lot at peak hour... You, you would end up paying more for that transport than w- what you were paying before, but uh, in return you'd get uh, less congested roads. So if you're a plumber or an electrician, you might be able to do an extra couple of jobs a week and that would more than offset whatever the increased cost would be. So we're only talking about uh, people uh, using their car to drive. So we're not talking about a road user charge for people cycling or walking. Or, or get, public transport. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, really interesting. And I think, um, I mean, this, I can imagine any change in this space and, and disruption has people that are, are losers as well as winners. And uh, is there a way of kind of mitigating how many people lose in any sort of transition that you're talking about? Yeah, well, well the idea of calibrating it so that if you drive less than average, you become a winner and you're better off uh, is important. But there might also need to be some equity considerations in terms of uh, people with healthcare cards or low incomes. What can we do to create a system so that they're paying uh, less than someone who drives an expensive car in a fancy suburb? You know, so there needs to be some equity associated with that. And there's some there's some groundwork that's already been created from countries like Finland, which when you get caught speeding in Finland, your fine is uh, uh, is related to how much your taxable income is. And, and that might be an idea for, for Australia as well. I was about to ask you about other examples around the world. It's always Scandinavia, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, Finland actually has great distances, but Australia and the US, I suppose, people travel a long way and so this idea if you live in the outer suburbs and you're commuting or whatever that um, that will hit you harder in a user pay model is it these the kinds of issues as well that we need to deal with yeah i think also because we're dealing with um inbuilt the the inequity that we already have the system that we've created for cars already imposes that kind of cost that people on lower incomes tend to be forced or choose to uh, live in the outer suburbs where they're car dependent, uh, they have fewer lower quality public transport services, they have to run two, three cars and they have further to drive, things like uh, petrol prices are already very vulnerable to them. 
So we're dealing with that inequality and then it's it can sound like or it could actually turn out to be just another cost that drives that inequality further. So I think this, this kind of timing and the, and the event is an opportunity to really assess how fair or unfair our transport pricing already is and then to see could we start again in a way where there are more winners. If you're just tuned in, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Elliot Fishman and Dr. Elizabeth Taylor all about uh, an upcoming seminar they're both appearing at that the Institute for Sensible Transport is putting on called What Does the Future of Transport Look Like? And I was thinking about any examples I've kind of seen of, of disruption in this space recently. And one is the, the O-bike phenomenon. If you haven't seen them, they're these yellow bikes that have kind of popped up all over our city streets. And I mean, it kind of brought to mind to me the fact that some of the complaints around this that I've seen on social media is that they're taking up up uh, parking spots for bikes. They're taking up regular bike racks where people would have otherwise been able to, to put their bike on. They're potentially blocking um, pedestrian kind of thoroughfares in some insta- instances. But is that the sort of disruption that I guess we should be celebrating and encouraging for private companies to bring in something new to the equation to kind of force us to rethink the way we do things? Yeah, look, I think it's a, a great example of the private sector coming in and saying, well, we, we think we can do a good job at this. Now, whether they can or not is another question. And Whilst I, I hope them every, I hope they they they're successful in in their their venture in Melbourne. I'm not quite sure that the setup that they've currently got is suggestive that they will be successful. So at the moment, unlike the Melbourne Blue Bikes, uh, these guys require a commercial return on their investment, and that ne- that requires the bikes to be used regularly. And I'm not sure whether Melbourne has the sorts of uh, uh, characteristics that are suggestive of high bike share use, the, mo- the most important one being density. And if you look at density in Melbourne from an international perspective, we're pretty low on that graph and the relationship between bike share and density is, is very direct. So the denser the city, the more bike share use you'll get. The, the other concern that I have with O-Bike is their pricing scheme, which has uh, it's $2 for a 30-minute trip. Now, if you were to use that trip uh, use those bikes as part of a commute and you used those bikes for you know 240 days which is the typical number of working days in a year that would work out to be about 960 dollars across the course of a year whereas a typical bike share scheme usually would charge an annual membership of about a hundred dollars then you get to use those bikes as many times as you want as long as each trip is under 30 minutes without having to pay any additional so i think their pricing structure isn't quite right and the other thing they've got there which i think some of your listeners might um do well to listen to is that if you park your bike in an area that O-Bike don't deem to be a suitable spot, you'll get points deducted from your membership. So you start off with 100 points, and then every time you do something like that, you get a couple of points deducted. Demerits. Yeah, so if you go down to 60 points, each 30-minute trip costs $200. So you can actually get a limousine to take you where you needed to go and avoid that. You need to get your head around a lot of things in disruption, don't you? Yeah, that's right, because if you don't read the fine print, then you might have a nasty surprise when you get your bank statement. And so, I mean, we mentioned uh, electric vehicles earlier, and, and there's lots of innovation in this space and lots of things being tried around the world. I think most recently I, I saw in the UK they're trying to put charging stations on power poles and existing infrastructure. And I suppose uh, are these the kind of um, wins that we're looking for, the kinds of transitions where there's can we use existing infrastructure for new technologies or do we have to build a whole new network in every time something new pops up? Yeah, well, look, it would be great to be able to adapt existing infrastructure like light poles, and that's something that's happening in, in different cities. And I know that in the Netherlands they have uh, a program to be able to put uh, charging uh, stations on curbside 
car parking because so few people in the Netherlands have uh, a garage and driveway like like we do in Australia. So if you're going to have a high uptake of electric vehicles, you need to be able to charge them on the street. And so far in Australia, we've been quite reluctant with the idea of a local council helping to subsidise the cost of installing or retrofitting those uh, charging stations on things like lampposts because at the moment the only people not the only people but mostly the people that have plug-in electric vehicles are quite wealthy and so there's this um, equity issue and and there's also a public perception issue about uh, uh, providing a public subsidy for something like that for only the people that can afford a hundred thousand dollars and i mean as we know with price uh, cost curves with a whole lot of things like batteries and and solar panels and the like they that can exponentially decline so you know that might change but i mean if we get rid of the car parks list uh what about you know electric vehicle cha- charging stations do we need to think about the in, in the what can happen if you get rid of one thing yeah. and yet we need that facility there for something different later that we haven't thought of maybe. I certainly think, well, I sometimes get excited as, as some people do as well, but around the opportunities around parking, the fact that we have so much parking, you know, some areas it can be 30%, some US cities it's half the ground space is, is just surface car parking. So think of all the opportunities to, to remodel that or, or reuse it for something else if this happens. But I guess in the short term, our planning processes require car parking and they have design specifications that pretty much mean you can only use it for parking so i think um re redesigning or making the um a future proofing kind of approach to how car parking spaces are designed perhaps with electrical vehicles in mind but also potential reuse as housing space or as green space for example the ceiling heights in in car parks currently preclude that or make it more difficult um, doing that now is one way of kind of accounting for these possibilities in the future because at the moment we're very much We've got a kind of a duality between people that are completely uh, dependent on cars and dedicated to private car ownership and parking and free parking, and then we have all these disruptions coming in, and not, it, neither is kind of right for everyone at the moment, but the future might be going in either direction. Could that be quite a hard sell for, for governments or even local councils going forward, given the types of strong responses and reactions to parking that we've seen? Yeah, we have to find with parking things that you can win over people. So it's so entrenched, the expectation that there's parking and it's free and and you'll always find it, that we need to look for opportunities for bringing people on board and it usually doesn't involve taking away, you have to give something back as well. One of the simple things that can be done on that and that is is done in other countries is decoupling car parking from housing so you can buy a house and you can choose to buy a car park with it or you could choose not to at the moment you're essentially forced to buy both which is has meant as liz knows that a lot of these car parks aren't used nearly as well as as the planning scheme w- w- would have suggested that they might have been. it's great for storage for instance a garage but um i mean just to, in the time we've got left i'd love to talk about cities versus towns and i know towns are part of this seminar are they are there greater opportunities say for for cities like Geelong or, or smaller towns in regional areas to kind of leapfrog, I suppose, some of the problems that, say, Melbourne might have with public transport and, and transport in general and just take on some of the new technologies that are coming our way? Yes, that was one answer. <laughs> and we do see uh, some regional towns really taking initiative <coughs> with um, power, solar power, that sort of thing, and also in terms of things like public Wi-Fi. That's a, uh, I guess because regional towns are often overlooked by central governments as well, there is a bit of a history in Australia and other countries of small towns taking initiative, uh, providing public services in a way that 
is lower cost than it would be in the city and giving them a kind of technological edge. For example, Goulburn is, is on that track and there's some others along that line. I think transport's a little difficult because regional places are often will have all those disadvantages in terms of lower density and it is harder to, um, you know, finance, I guess, public transport and people are very... Um, car dependent in regional areas but what do you think Elliot is a sort of could be well, a, a start startup I think one of the opportunities that some regional centres have is that they haven't lost their human scale in the way that some of our major metropolitan centres have so uh, so that means that the distance between where people uh, live and where people work might be a lot shorter than in in some of our major cities certainly there'll be some long commutes as well but a higher proportion of those trips will be under five kilometres, which means that there are the opportunities for encouraging active transport and public transport that perhaps hasn't been there for, for major cities. So I, I think there are some opportunities there, but uh, at the moment, one of the things that we've got in regional centres is there doesn't seem to be any real urban growth boundary for them and they just keep spreading out and out. And uh, I visit regional centres a lot and every time you go there, you seem, it seem, they seem to be releasing another parcel of land on the outskirts, which really only... Uh, uh, makes it more difficult to try and foster that sort of sustainable living that a lot of people are interested in when they go to a regional centre. I have one one example I was thinking of of regional towns. The introduction of drink driving laws was really catastrophic for country pubs and some of them run those little shuttle buses <laughs> to bring their drunk customers home. So I wonder if country pubs will take up the... It could be be a driverless vehicle, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) That and more at the seminar this week, if you're interested. What does the future of transport in Australian cities and towns look like? And uh, two of the speakers, Liz Taylor and also Elliot Fishman, and their various topics, um, they're both uh, quite deep in their knowledge of transport, but there's lots of other people on the bill as well, if this is the kind of thing that interests you. And um, no doubt we'll have you back on Triple R soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.